So um, I'm actually going to change things up a little bit. I'm actually going to start with our scripture reading. So uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 84 this morning. So if you guys could turn to Psalm 84, that would be great. Um, if you have one of the black Bibles in the pews, I believe it's on page 493. I actually forgot to double check, but I think that's right. Um, but it should be probably roughly around there. Um, but yeah, I'll give you guys a second to turn to Psalm 84 before I read it. So, um, please follow along with me as I read Psalm 84. It says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion." O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let me ask you guys this. What does it mean to daily delight in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to enjoy our Lord I ask that question because that is, in a sense, what this, what this psalm is pointing us to. It's not necessarily teaching us the answer to that question. It's not expositing what it means to delight in, in God, to enjoy him, to long for him. It's showing us. This is a picture of someone who is exemplifying um, that trait. This is someone who, when he was singing the songs that we were just singing, there was heart behind it. Just as Caleb was calling us to, to really think genuinely about the words, to, to marvel at our Savior and sing for him genuinely, this is someone who is doing that in this psalm. The psalmist isn't talking to us, he's talking to his God who he delights in. Um, and it's his manner and words that teach us so much because the psalm is a glimpse into his heart. Um, and is a heart that rightly knows and sees God. He knows what he lacks without him, but he also knows what he has been given in God, and he, he cherishes it, he craves it. Um, he recognizes the blessings that come with being in God's presence, and he yearns for it. This is not a person who is content with just pulling out their Bible once every couple of days and praying maybe just as often as that, 
This isn't someone that would go through their daily life just kind of just focused on their earthly circumstances and the things that are going on um, and maybe just thinks about God on Sunday mornings or on their community group night. This is someone who is continually, consciously aware of the God who is over his life and is sustaining it. This is not a person who, when he is hurting or struggling, seeks to escape to earthly delights, but he cries out to God. Um, he runs to God in those moments. His appetite is for his God. Um, and we can see the joy that that brings him. It, it's so evident in every verse of the psalm. Um, and so I want us to learn from this snapshot that we have this morning in this psalm. Uh, because sadly, the problem is that there are few Christians, I think, who actually experience what this psalmist is experiencing, what he's portraying here. Few Christians know the joy and stability that they can find in communion with their God. Many of you might be some of them. Many of you might be looking at this psalm, or maybe even as we were singing the songs earlier, you might have thought about them, you might have been paying attention to the lyrics, and you might be thinking, okay, this is good, this, I know this is how, I, those things are how I should feel and think, but you don't really resonate with it. You don't long for God like the psalmist does. Your appetite for him is maybe weak, or maybe worst of all is that maybe it's been like that so long that you're okay with that. And because you don't think that things will ever even change. You don't expect that a hunger for God is even an expectation in the Christian life. You might be tired of trying to get things like prayer and Bible reading right. You might come on Sunday mornings because you know it's the expectation. You know it's what you should do. Um, but you're checked out during the sermon. You're checked out during conversation with others. Um, it's become mundane for you. It's become a non-spiritual reality. And I don't think that's true of a lot of, a lot of you in this church. This is a church that loves God. And I cherish the fact that I get to be an elder that gets to witness that each and every day in this church. But I do know that this is also a struggle for some of you. And I want to address it because I believe that the primary reason for that is because we are prone to view our communion with God wrongly. Um, it's not that... Um, there's something wrong with communion itself. It's that we view it wrongly. Because as human beings, even after becoming Christians, we are expert legalists. It is the most natural thing in the world for us to turn everything into legalism. We might intellectually believe that Jesus is our Savior, but functionally in our day-to-day -day lives, we are prone to act as though something else is our Savior. I'm not saying that we do that all the time, but that is our inclination. That's what we're prone to do. And for many Christians, that Savior that we can put above the actual Savior, Jesus, is our spiritual disciplines or our spiritual activities. We ask ourselves if we've prayed enough. We wonder if we've read our Bibles enough. And if we can answer yes, then we are content and we can be happy with ourselves for the day. 
But if we can't answer yes, maybe we recognize it's been a couple days since we really pulled out our Bibles and read anything, then we feel guilty, and we might even feel insecure in our relationship with Christ. We wonder if we, if we even are saved. We, we start but don't finish Bible reading plans, and we question whether Christ is even for us and with us. We treat communion as an obligation rather than an opportunity um, to experience Christ. And do you see the problem with that? When we do that, we aren't trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We're trusting in our works, albeit they're spiritual, spiritual ones, but we're trusting in our works, our own activities. That is a works-based salvation. That is not salvation of grace. That isn't what the gospel communicates to us. That's not what we believe. That does not produce peace and joy, which is the fruit of the gospel. That will produce fear and anxiety when we all will inevitably, inevitably fail. Our confidence should not ebb and flow with these activities. It should remain stable in Christ. Now, consider this quote um, from Tony Ranke. He read it wrote a book that I'm reading called Newton on the Christian Life, and it's kind of reflections on John Newton's views of what the Christian life is and should look like. Um, And Ranke says this, the mature Christian life is marked by a daily return to the Lamb of God and diligent Bible reading, not merely as a daily discipline, but as a means to lead to heart-satisfying delight in the all-sufficient Savior. The mature Christian prays not out of a sense of mere duty, but because the all-sufficiency of Christ draws him to ask and plead in confidence. He listens intently to sermons because he awaits a glimpse of the precious Savior. The more he sees of Christ, the more he seeks by the means of grace, which are scripture reading, prayer, and fellowship with the gathered church. His spiritual life is structured by discipline. Friends, this is the gospel in a nutshell. God is not with you because you pray and read your Bible. He is not for you because you serve your community and the church. God does not love you because of the positive influence you strive to have or maybe the legacy you're trying to leave with your life, in your family and with your friends. Christians and non-Christians alike need to remember this and believe it. God is with you because Jesus died for your sins on the cross and he paid the debt that you owe. The wage or the price of your sins was death. So he paid that price on your behalf. That is why we can have eternal life. That is why we can have salvation. God is with you because of Jesus' sacrifice, not the sacrifices you seek to make on your own each and every day. The mature Christian is one who prays and reads his Bible with the knowledge that God is already his and he is God's. That is what Ranke is saying in his quote from the quote in the book that I was just reading. As Christians, we shouldn't go to our Bible, to prayer, to sermons, or to church fellowship to get Jesus as though we don't already have him. We go to such things so that we might taste of the grace that we already have. That utterly changes how we approach spiritual disciplines. And that's how this psalm portrays communion with God. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 3. 
at the very end of the verse, he says, my king and my God. That's just a a small glimpse into his view of his relationship with God. He knows already that God is his and he is God's. Their relationship is already secure and he knows it. And because of that, the psalmist is able to experience all the blessings that come from being close with his Savior. He's not, he's not delighting he's in, in worship. He's not seeking God's courts um, and dwelling place because he feels like that's what he needs to do to save himself. That would be a duty. That would be an obligation. That would be work. But no, he's going there because he knows he already has God. And when he goes there, he will get to experience the fullness of joy that God promises to his people. And that's what I want for us as a church. That's how I want us to think about what our daily walks with Christ should look like. It's with that frame of mind that I want us to approach this text. So don't go to the spiritual disciplines to gain Christ in a sense, not in a salvific sense. Non-Christians, you can't get him that way. Know that. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, just praying a lot will not be your way of earning salvation. Repent and believe and know that your grace is received through his sacrifice on your behalf, not in your efforts. And Christian, know that you already have him. Commune with him so that you might be satisfied in him. Go to him for that satisfaction. So I'll sum up the psalm's main point with this statement. By the grace of God, not by our own works, that's just a caveat, all of your longings will be satisfied in Christ. So again, by the grace of God, all your longings will be satisfied in Christ. And we'll see how this is true by looking at three ways that the psalmist was satisfied in his own communion with God. Um, We'll see that So these are going to be the three points that I kind of work us through. First, we're going to see how Christ is our home. Then we're going to see how Christ is our strength. And then finally, we're going to, in a sense, climax by seeing how Christ is our great reward. Um, So that's kind of how how the psalmist structures his own prayers and praise to God. So that's how I'm going to structure um, the sermon as well. So let's first consider how the psalmist shows us that Christ is our home um, to all who are his. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 84. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So as I've already mentioned, the psalmist longs to be near God. His soul even faints for him. And he's using the same language and even elaborates on this same language in another psalm. So, The psalmist wrote Psalm 42 as well, and it's interesting. If you want to flip there, you can, but I just want to read a quote from Psalm 42 again because he uses the same kind of language to express his desire for God, but he goes into even greater detail in that one. He says this, he starts off Psalm 42 like this, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? The yearning that he experiences is so intense that it physically manifests itself in his life. It's like, it's like an actual thirst. It's like an actual hunger. Um, he's eager. He anticipates to, to be with God again. So both psalms express that craving that he has to be near God. 
And for the people of God at this point in time, the time when this psalm was written, that meant going to the temple in Jerusalem. That was, at this time, literally where God dwelled amongst his people. Don't overlook that fact. We have a very different perspective of God's presence with his people today. When, when the psalmist is talking about going, like God's dwelling place, that's not metaphorical language. It seems unusual to us today, but if someone wanted to be near God at this point in history, they physically needed to go somewhere. It's not like today. Today, as we know, Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's true for us today. Or what Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. At this point in time, though, the temple was God's dwelling place. That's where his, his spirit and glory resided with his people. We can't take that for granted. Communion with God changed drastically at Pentecost. And those of us who are united with Christ by faith have the spirit of God with us at all times. That is a precious gift. But that wasn't the case for them yet. The Spirit had not descended on God's people. Seeking forgiveness and offering sacrifices took place at the temple. Worship, again, took place at the temple. It wasn't to be done just anywhere. If one wanted to experience the presence of God, he or she went there. They actually needed to travel to Jerusalem. Most likely, this psalm was actually probably written as the psalmist was on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem so that he could be at the temple and be near God. And look with me at verse 4. It says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. He wishes he were one of those blessed few who could live in the temple grounds and participate in worship all of the time. It is lovely to him, and it causes him great joy to be there for the moments that he is, but he longs to be able to be there all the time. Aren't we blessed to be able to say that that is true for every single one of us now, that we are, we are the temple of God. So we don't have to go somewhere to experience his presence. At all times, we are able to participate in communion with God intimately. His spirit is with us and working in us at all times. We can be near him and worship it all the time. Let's not waste that as the psalmist recognized um, was precious. And think of something that you've longed for so much that your anticipation for it affected you physically. So kind of getting back to that idea that the psalmist was physically moved by his anticipation. Have you ever experienced an occasion like that? Um, I, I was thinking about this yesterday and reflecting on it, and um, one of the times that I remember this, and this was more due to like just like youthfulness and just childlike excitement. But um, one of the times when, when I very clearly and vividly remember experiencing this type of thing myself was the first time I was going to be on an airplane. Um, so my grandparents, I was really young at this time, uh, my grandparents were going to take me to Disney World. And I, I was actually way more excited about the flight to Disney World than actually being there. Um, I actually don't even remember the trip. I don't even know what we did. But I do vividly remember the plane, the, like the plane ride. I, was, I had just always been excited about being able to fly in a plane. Um, and so like, we were going to be taking a really early flight out. 
Um, and so we needed to be up fairly early, but I was up like hours before we needed to be just because I was so excited about getting ready to go. And I'm sure I was driving my grandparents crazy because I was super alert and just asking tons of questions and just as happy as could be. Um, but again, I, I don't remember much of my childhood, but I remember this occasion vividly. And I even remember as we were on, in the car driving to the airport, I remember just spending almost the entire car ride just like staring out the window, looking for planes in the air because I knew I was going to be up there also soon. And I was just so excited about it. Um, and it's like that, that anticipation, that eagerness was affecting me physically I was awake and alert and excited. My adrenaline was probably pumping. Um, even like my memory is more acute of that time because of it. Um, and that, that's, what, that's what this psalmist is experiencing in Psalm 84. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, like, why was it so strong for him? Um, I mean, I wish my longing for God was that just eager all of the time? It's not, but I want it to be. And, and so I have to ask myself, like, what did he have? What, what did he know? What did he see that I don't? What allowed him to experience that? And we'll see more reasons um, in the next two points that we're going to look at, but the one that he starts with is a very simple reality, but it's, it's a profound one. And that was that where God was, there he was at home as well. For him, that was at the temple. But for us, um, who have come after the resurrection, who have come after Pentecost, that is with Christ. Look with me at verse 3. It says, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. With God... No one is turned away. Even the most insignificant of animals was not ignored or overlooked by him. All are welcomed and invited into his presence. He is our king and our God. And we know that is true because Jesus died so that all might be saved. Anyone who confesses their sins and trusts in Christ for forgiveness, they receive, they receive God as their home. They receive him as the place that they belong, the person who they belong with. He came into the earth, and remember that Christ came to this earth to die for sinners, not for the righteous. He came for the sick, not the healthy. He came for outcasts and the destitute, not those who have everything that they need for themselves. He comes for all of us. Though we are unworthy, he makes a home for us with himself. He gives us a place of rest and solace and protection from trials and the hazards that this world is constantly bombarding us with. I don't know about you, but I love being able to come home to my apartment after a long trip. Um, I love my first night back when I get to, like, I've been traveling for a couple days maybe, and I get to come home, and I get to sleep in my own bed for the first time and sit on my own couch and just kind of relax in my own space. I love that. It is so refreshing. It's a place that I know. Everything is where I want it to be. Um, it's familiar. It's comfortable. It's safe. Um, 
Friends, that is how your relationship with Christ can and should feel. When you pray, you can and should know that you are speaking to a dear and close companion who knows you and he loves you more than you could ever imagine. You can let down your guard with him because, I mean, for one, any secrets that you would try to keep from him, he already knows. And two, he isn't going to leave or forsake you. In his own words, at the end of Matthew, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, that is true, not because of your own works, but because of his. That's what your security, that's what your hope rests in, in that. That is how you can know that he is a home for you. With him is where you ought to be. So communion with him is a balm for our weary and anxious hearts. It shouldn't be something that's toilsome because, again, we shouldn't treat it as just a duty or a responsibility to kind of put ourselves in good standing with God. No, we go to it because we are satisfied with the peace and familiarity and just comfort that God provides. You can try to find a home in another person or a certain location maybe even, but it won't ultimately work for you. You won't be satisfied. They or it will disappoint you. Christ will not, though. Take your job, for example. This means, in the context of work, that when things aren't going well at work, it's actually, it's okay. It's okay because, in a sense, it should be expected. We should expect not to be perfectly settled and comfortable and 100% at peace and at rest in our jobs. Aspects of your job will annoy you. You will feel inadequate at times, or you won't enjoy it very much. When you face those moments, though, what do you do? When your boss asks you to do something that you really don't like, or one of your customers really upsets you, how do you respond in your heart? Do you just let yourself get flustered and upset, or do you preach to yourself? Know that that in and of itself can be a form of communion with God preaching his truths that he has communicated to you in his word is communion with him. When you are reminding yourself of those truths, you are bringing Christ into your circumstances. He is coming to bear on your context. You are drawing near to him. And if you're doing that, what is it that you can say? Well, Psalm 84 gives us something that we can say, even in that context of work, reminding ourselves that our job is not our home. Your job is not meant to bear that weight and responsibility. It's not meant to be an idol for you. You will never truly feel settled there. It will be hard and disappointing at times, and even most of the time, potentially. Your home is with the Lord, though. And when we remember that, we're able to work through trying circumstances because our unrealistic expectations of our jobs are gone. And we don't have to keep looking for where the grass is greener, because we, won't, we know that we won't find that in any earthly vocation, ultimately. We can persevere through that moment and instead set our eyes on Christ and even set our eyes forward, looking ahead to the day when we will be with him, when we will not only by faith know that he is our home, but we will experience that fully and completely in an undiminished, un unstained by sin sense, we will feel perfectly at peace with him. So we can long for that. 
And all of this that I've just been describing, this kind of scenario that you can have play out at work each and every day, multiple times a day, this is prayerful, word-saturated communion with Christ during your work day. So I encourage you, if you don't do this type of thing, seek to do it. Don't just kind of take any frustrations you might have and just kind of like smash it down and just tell yourself, okay, I'm just not going to give this an outlet. That's, that's not a faithful response to that. Christ calls us to be able to not only respond to our frustrations, but to be even more satisfied in him than we would have been otherwise. So that's what we want to do. And again, we do this kind of communion not to make ourselves right with him, but so that we can be satisfied in him. And he goes on, though, the psalmist does, and turns his attention beyond just how Christ is our home, but he he looks at how Christ is our strength. So that's what we're going to consider next. So look with me at verses 5 through 8. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Like I have said before, Christ does not save us because we are strong in our faith or our fruitfulness in ministry. He saves us so that he might make us strong and fruitful. He saves us so that he can enable us to do that, not because we have already enabled ourselves to. That is why he wants us to draw near to him, so that he might make us strong. That is what these verses tell us. The blessed are those who find strength in Christ, not themselves. And as we see in verse 7, Christ will provide them continual strength day after day until they appear before him in Zion. It's in their hearts that the highways of Zion are. That means they know the narrow path that leads to eternal life. They know it. It is written on their hearts and they will pursue it. They will follow it until they reach the end. And again, that is... That will be done through Christ's strength, not our own. Redeemer, think about how comforting that is. Does that not reassure you? Does that not give you confidence and hope? Your hope doesn't need to be and shouldn't be in your own abilities at being able to be faithful in this life. If you were just relying on your own strength, we would have all have failed already. You never would have even have chosen Christ in repentance and faith in the first place. None of us would have ever have been Christians. Every single human being, if they were solely dependent upon their own strength, their own spirit, their own heart, would all face God's wrath and judgment. It is only because of his changing our hearts that any of us are saved. And it's only because of him changing our hearts and strengthening us and giving us perseverance that any of us will come to the end of our lives and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But he will do that in each and every one of his people. That's what this psalmist is praising God for. That is what he's thanking him for. That is our hope. You are not saved because you have a special affinity for spiritual things or because God thinks you're tough enough um, and strong enough to obey him when it's hard. No, you don't have it and you aren't. 
we are all weak. As the hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, we are all prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We are prone to leave the God we love. We would not make it to Zion in our own strength. And if we are honest with ourselves, we should recognize that. And let me give you an example, if you're not even convinced yet. What do you do when your spouse or just someone close to you doesn't do the thing that maybe you just already asked them to do three times? Let me guess. Let, let me guess that you perfectly and patiently understand your spouse. You've asked them to do something three times, um, and they haven't done it yet, but you understand there's, there's got to be a perfectly reasonable explanation. You're just going to be patient. Um, you're not going to get frustrated. There's no ounce of anger that you experience at all after they haven't done it again. Maybe you ask them a fourth time, and they still haven't done it. But you're patient still. You're still rejoicing. You're still glad. And you know what? You, do, you decide, you know what? This is a great opportunity. Obviously, they can't do it, so I want to serve them. So I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm sure you respond that way every single time that scenario has ever come up, right? No, absolutely not. None of us ever respond that way. We are self-centered, sinful people. We choose ourselves over God and, and over others every minute of every day. And that's what's natural for us. That's what it means to have a sinful nature. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt all of the time, but we rarely do the same thing for others. We get angry before we even have time to even think about it. It's just our gut reaction to so many things in life. No, we are not strong enough to follow Christ on our own. But he will see us through every pain, every struggle, every disappointment and worry and fear that you have. Think about how much sin and conflict we could overcome if we relied on him and not ourselves more often. Think about how much more joyful we would be. That, that's what the psalmist is doing. That's what we want to emulate and imitate in his life. <clears throat> As 1 Peter 1.5 says, we are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation. It's God's power, not our own, that guards us and protects us. Our faith is the product of his work in us. We will persevere because he will see to it that we do. And therefore, we should go to him asking for strength, pleading for it, and expecting it to be provided to us. In verse 6, it mentions that God's people will go through the Valley of Baca and make it a place of springs. Now, an interesting fact about this is that scholars don't even know if the Valley of Baca is actually a real place. Um, there's, from what historians have been able to research, there's no actual references of this location in any sort of historical documents. Um, and so they don't know where this was or even if it was a place. Um, it could very well be that the psalmist is um, using metaphorical language and creating um, this idea of a valley of Baca because the Hebrew word for Baca implies um, a very dry and arid place. So basically, what the, what, how we should think about the valley of Baca is that that is a place, it's a dry, arid place that has a harsh environment. Few plants can grow there. 
It's a place that doesn't support or harbor very much life. Um, So what then is he saying here? If he's saying, as they go through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, what does he mean by that? He means that God's people will be able to flourish and strive even in the harshest of circumstances. With Christ's strength, if we seek him, we can bear fruit where no one else would. That means that we can rejoice where others would despair. Or we can show sacrificial love where others would seek to harm us or seek to do harm to others. We can be loving in those instances. Christians are able to not only endure the trials that we have to face, but we're able to bear fruit and grow through them if we seek Christ. So we commune with him in prayer and the word and fellowship and sermons and all of these things, not so that we can prove ourselves to him, but so that we can take, in a sense, another refreshing drink, life-giving, rejuvenating drink from the fountain of living water. We go to him because he offers us his strength freely and abundantly. If, and we all only need to ask to receive it. So don't believe the lie that tells you that you are able to do anything by faith apart from the support and assistance in Christ. As Romans 14.23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So parents, are your actions proceeding from faith when you are disciplining your children in anger rather than for their good? Or singles, are your thoughts proceeding from faith when you are growing discontent in your singleness? No. In both cases, the answer is no. There are so many other moments in our days that are occasions for us to either walk by faith or walk in unbelief. So let's choose to walk by faith, by seeking Christ, by remembering him and his truths in those moments. And that can be done simply by reminding ourselves that Christ, like in that first instance that I brought up about the parent that's disciplining their children out of anger, we can walk by faith in that moment by reminding ourselves that Christ does not punish you, the parent, out of anger, but he only disciplines you for your good. Therefore, you can do the same for your child. Or maybe consider the second case about a single person who is discontent in letting those thoughts kind of fester and build in their mind. Take some time to remind yourself of how mighty and attentive your Lord and Savior is to you. You have a companion. You are not alone. These small but regular reminders that we can give ourselves throughout our days can have farther reaching effects than you would ever imagine in your faith and your joy. Let those truths and promises of the word nourish and strengthen you as Christ Christ promises to provide. But Psalm 84 doesn't end there. The psalmist continues in the final verses in climaxing on how he's rejoicing in the fact that Christ is his great reward. Um, And so I want us to look at that next. So look with me. We're just going to start with verse 9 first. It says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Now, this is actually a messianic verse calling God to look to the king of his people. So many of the messianic verses in the Psalms, they have a, at that time, a contemporary um, context that it was speaking to. But the reason that they're messianic is because 
They pointed to something during that time, but they also pointed to the coming Christ. They had a double meaning. And this is one of those verses. The psalmist is calling God to consider um, the king over the nation of Israel at this point in time. But we know, having been those who have seen the coming of Christ and knowing that he is the ultimate king of God's people, we know that this is actually speaking to him. So when it says, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed anointed one, um, the psalmist is calling God to look upon his own son on our behalf. And that's because, and it is because of him, it is because of Christ that the next verse can be so true for us. So he's saying, behold God, look upon your son. He might not have even fully recognized the ultimate fulfillment of what he was speaking, but we do know that. So we can see that he's saying, behold your son, O God. And then we get to verse 10. Look with me at verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This verse, it honestly floors me when I meditate on this. Um, Think about it. The psalmist knows and is reminding us that there is no better place than to be with our God. Now, that's that's a thought that I'm sure we all know, and it's easy to overlook the significance of that. Um, but, But really stop and consider it. No amount of time spent anywhere else doing anything else can surpass just a moment spent in the presence of God, beholding his glory and power. Think about your favorite moments in life. Think about some of the things that you have just been like, that was amazing. I will remember that for the rest of my life. That was so... Maybe it was standing on a mountain and looking out and seeing just a beautiful landscape that you had never seen before. Maybe it's just like a precious moment with your spouse. Maybe it's your wedding day. Even if that were to go on forever, that would not be as good as even just a moment beholding God. That moment is so much more precious. And it's because he embodies all that is good all that is beautiful, all that is majestic and delightful and pleasing to us, God embodies that. And so when we are with him, we get to just soak in the satisfaction that he can provide and nothing else can. And keep in mind that I'm not just speaking about God the Father. Jesus, remember, is the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus embodies all that is good, and Jesus is all satisfying for us. He is our great reward, and you can experience his joy by drawing near to him, even today. I recognize that that can't be fully 100% experienced now, but you can experience that still, nevertheless, and it's still far greater than anything else that this life can offer you. And this is, again, where having a right view of the gospel makes all the difference in the world when it comes to our spiritual disciplines. Don't go to prayer and the word to make yourself worthy for Christ. If that's why you go to them, 
then you'll inevitably grow ashamed and worried because you will fail. No, you have already been united with Christ and sealed with his spirit by grace if you have faith. Jesus himself said in John 15, after telling, and so he's talking about this, he's about to say this after just telling the disciples to abide in him because he's abiding with them. And he says this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's what Christ offers and wants to provide us. So instead, so instead, go to your spiritual disciplines to experience that, to taste and see the good reward that has already been given to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Go to him and partake of what is already yours. And if you don't feel anything, rejoice that a day will come when your enjoyment of Jesus will never fade, will never diminish, will never be fickle and impacted by your sin and corruption, but it'll be full, it'll be complete, it, could, it will be all-consuming for you, and it will be good. Look forward to that day and persevere, even if what you do now provides little effect in the moment. That will change. It is because of that hope and enjoyment that the psalmist is saying that he would rather have the lowest position in God's presence. He's talking about being a doorkeeper. The lowest position in God's presence than the highest position apart from him. He would, be, he would rather be the lowest person with God than be the mightiest man on earth and be cut off from him. That's what we should yearn for as well. That's how we should prioritize our relationship with Christ. Let's prioritize him over any earthly status and know that you are choosing something so much greater than what this earth can provide. But he doesn't stop there, though. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And I just want to repeat again that last part in verse 11 because I want it to sink in for you. This is, this is seriously one of my favorite sentences in all of scripture. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. First of all, what does it mean that God is our sun and shield? It means that he's our sustainer, he's a nourisher, and he's a protector for us. He gives us life. Um, consider, I mean, consider the sun. No life on earth could exist and survive without the sun, without its energy, um, without um, its sustaining power for us. We are, it sustains the world and all life that exists in it. That is what God is for us. He's our sustainer and provider but then also consider the shield. So he, of course, also protects and guards us from danger. So when you consider those two things together, we see that God provides us all that we need and he guards us against all that would harm us. And that's where we get back to that second part of verse 11. This is where he decisively really just like, he doesn't leave any doubt to what he is trying to say here, to what he's trying to communicate here. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. 
In other words, God does not withhold anything good from his children. But that also means, if you think about it kind of um, on the flip side, that also means that he allows nothing bad to befall us, ever. Think about it. Take this example of like an illness. If, if it would be good for us to be healthy, he would not permit us to be sick. Therefore, if we do become ill, then it must be because it is for our ultimate good to be unhealthy in that moment. For whatever reason, that is good for us. And this is so profound because it tells us that every single thing that ever happens to us ultimately benefits and serves our good and well-being. I heard it put this way once, and this has always stuck with me. God will not give you a single thing in this life that you would not ask him for yourself if you knew everything that he does. Everything that, that you face in this life, both your, your happiest moments and even your worst ones, if you knew all that God does, if you knew how he was orchestrating your life for your good, you would actually ask him for every single thing that he has given you in this life. All of the blessings and all of the trials. That's incredible to think about. That is such comfort when we are facing hardship, when we are wondering why terrible things are happening in our lives or in the lives of those around us. In his sovereign care over your life, you will suffer and face hardship. You will face disappointment and discontentment. But friends, all of it is for your ultimate well-being. Even death can be for our good. Death, I mean, even think about it. I'm not saying that these are the only reasons why God would allow one of his children to die. But even if you just consider, death brings an end to our suffering it brings an end to our sinning. That's, that's a good thing. I'm not saying death is good. Death is our enemy. But God even uses that for good and for the good of his people. Ultimately, we might not always know why something is good for us, but we absolutely have God's assurance that it is. And this psalmist is helping us to remember that, even as he takes comfort in that reality also. And this is why Christ is our great reward. Draw near to him so that you might rest in the peace that verse 11 offers, that all of this psalm offers. You are a sheep who is tended to by someone who possesses all power, possesses all knowledge, and who works all things out for your good. Every atom in the universe is set on a specific course so that your well-being is preserved and maintained. Isn't that incredible to think about? And he's not just doing that just for you. He's doing that for all of his people. That is how incredible God's power and wisdom is, that he is able to orchestrate all things for the good of all of his people. That's unbelievable. I can't even begin to like fathom how that even is possible. But it's true. Your life could be in no better hands than his. 
you could hope for no greater security than his loving, sovereign care. It changes the way that we can look at our trials. And that is true in both our most critical moments and in our seemingly most mundane ones. So remember this, instead of getting mad when maybe you're in your car and you're running late because of traffic, that, that can be for your good. And so you don't need to be angry in that moment. Don't need to get upset. So it can be something as mundane as that. Or maybe just someone says something that irks you. Remember, okay, this is, that was something for you to hear, to work through, and to trust Christ with. And that's for your good. So it's, it's good in those mundane moments, but it's also true in the most critical moments of our lives as well, the ones that weigh on us the heaviest. That is true when you are terrified because you just got a cancer diagnosis or someone that you dearly love is dying. This is true when you just lost your job and you have no idea how you're going to provide for your family. And even the hardest moments of our life we can know that God will not withhold any good for his people. And so we can turn to him. We can trust him and take comfort in that. Don't face those circumstances. Don't face that heartache or those trials or don't even face your own sin on your own. Turn to Christ. Cry out to him and be comforted by him. He will satisfy you. His truth will penetrate your heart and give you what you need. You can hope for no greater gift than him. And this, everything that I've been talking about, this is what it means to walk by faith. And not just uh, at churchy, churchish types of occasions like community group or Sunday morning or something like that. This is daily. This is day-to-day hour by hour, minute by minute, walking by faith. Communion is simply another way of saying that, that term communion. I'm just talking about walking by faith. It's living every moment consciously aware of the great Savior who gives you all spiritual blessings. Redeemer, let's enjoy that Lord and Savior. Don't spend your days going about life without giving him much thought. When you don't commune with God, you are deteriorating and you might not even realize it. You are inviting sin into your life and you are leaving yourself unguarded against dangers. We have to view our hour-by-hour lives through spiritual eyes, not earthly ones. Meaning that from an earthly standpoint, you might be doing perfectly fine. Everything might be going well. But spiritually, you might be anemic. There is hope, though, if that's the state you're in. And Psalm 84 reminds us of that. It's only, and think about it, there's even more to, to hope in, in Christ, more to be satisfied in him. This psalm gave us three things. Christ is our home, he is our strength, he's our great reward, but there are so many other things that Christ satisfies for us. Other needs, other desires. He is our righteousness, he is our wisdom, he is our counselor, he is our mediator before God. There are so many things that one could consider. And if you trust in Christ, don't go to him merely out of duty. Go to him because you want to experience what it's like for him to be all of those things for you. Experience the satisfaction 
that he offers you. Live each day remembering that by grace, all of your longings will be satisfied in Christ. And look forward to the day. Set your eyes forward also. Don't just look at the moment. Look forward to the day when Christ returns and you will experience a satisfaction in him that is beyond anything you can ever imagine. You have never known pleasure like what you will experience when that day comes. And so not only seek satisfaction now, but look forward expectantly and eagerly for that day. Let's do that as a church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your words in Psalm 84. Thank you for these reminders, for this example. Father, we want to be men and women who rejoice in our Lord and Savior. And we don't want it to just be at certain moments, but we want it to be every moment. We want it to be continual. God, help us to do that. Help us to think deeply about how to walk faithfully in all the different circumstances in life. And God, help us to rejoice in the grace that we have in Christ. We are secure in him through your grace, Father. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the fact that we cannot, despite the fact that we cannot earn our salvation, you have provided a way for us. God, you are amazing. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.